My name is Lydia. My name is Carla. And today we're joined by Nancy. And we are super thrilled to have a chance to sit down and chat about children, maker spaces, maybe rubber duckies. We'll oh, rubber duckies will absolutely come into this conversation. <laughs> and Carla's childhood traumas. <laughs> uh, Lydia, what's our podcast called? No librarians allowed. Good, you remembered. <laughs> so we're very happy to have Nancy join us today. So Nancy, you are a youth services librarian. That is correct. Tell us a really briefly kind of your journey into youth services and yeah, what, what you've done. You know, it's kind of funny because a lot of youth services librarians, if you ask them, they'll say, I knew from the moment I stepped into the doorway of library school, this is what I wanted to do. But for me, it's kind of like youth services was a rock on the sidewalk and I tripped over it and I'm down, so I might as well just stay down, um, which is just a way of saying I started as a cataloging librarian and then went into youth services. I just also want to point out that Nancy is the type of youth services librarian who has tiny skulls on the side of her glasses frames. <laughs> These are Alexander McQueen glasses. They're yeah. very classy. Yeah. Nice. That's how you know I mean serious business. Like children, <laughs> these skulls could be you if you don't behave. <laughs> Excellent. You're right. Not many people start off in cataloging, um, but it shows how I think one thing we appreciate about you is your curiosity and, and your willingness to learn and try new things. And I think you bring that to your everyday work. So, well, that's why I like youth services so much. I think, you know, of all, all disciplines in the library world, try new things. But I think there isn't a special excitement in just, you know, flat out. I don't know what this is going to work. I don't know what I'm doing, but let's do it. I think that's really inherent in youth services. What was it that you were thinking about when you made the switch into youth services? Like, was there something you were particularly excited about? Or like, did something happen that you were besides tripping over a rock? No, it really was like tripping over a rock. So I was in cataloging for a while and I enjoyed it, but I really wanted to go into the public service side of things. And a youth services a librarian position happened to open up. So I was applying for everything at that point, but this is the only one I got. So I thought, well, I will stick with it. And then I kind of fell in love with it after I was in the job. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. The reason we wanted to take the time to chat with you today is I know our colleagues in a digital services department have always described you as kind of librarian who, who seamlessly integrates technology and these ideas of STEAM or digital literacy into youth programming and just delivering services to kids. And that's, I think, the best way it should be, right? Like, it should feel so natural that it's just mm -hmm. part of what we do with children. We, Absolutely. We have sort of print literacy, but we also have digital literacy. Mm -hmm. And both are relevant and interesting in their own ways. So I'm wondering if you can comment on, I guess, how you've been able to integrate these ideas of STEAM. So first of all, maybe define it mm -hmm. into school age services. For sure. So um, I'll just quickly define STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And you'll hear that term, and you'll also hear the term STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. So you've taken the A for arts out. And the first thing is a lot of people ask me, Nancy, what is the difference between STEAM and STEM besides the obvious, STEM has no arts. And for me, STEM refers to the technical, the industries, the professions. When we talk about, you know, I want there to be more women in STEM, we're talking about, you know, I want more women in tech and engineering. STEAM for me is an educational approach. So for example, when we're teaching STEM to kids, when we're encouraging them STEM, we want to add the arts component because we want to encourage them to be creative, to be imaginative, that pure technical expertise will only get you so far and that there is definitely a creative side to it that you need to bring into your work. But then once you're in the profession, you tend to drop the A because I don't think anyone would really say that someone with an English major is really the same thing as an engineer, right? They're kind of... So that's my spiel. I do get asked that a lot. And I think it's interesting that you talk about how to seamlessly integrate STEAM into library programs because that is a thing that I really believe in. And I think if you ask a lot of youth services people who work with kids, they will agree that it, it is a valuable thing for libraries to offer for kids to learn. For a lot of people, I think it's very much second place to traditional modes of literacy. You know, it's the lesser cousin. And I think we need to buck that stereotype. 
why, as a public library, should we be interested in offering STEAM programs? Why should we invest in maker spaces for kids? Why should we teach them robotics? What is the value in it for them? What's in it for us? And also the larger question of what does the library have? What role do we have in this versus a school? Because increasingly more and more schools are incorporating STEAM into, well, they all do, but they're, you know, they're adding things like coding programs and robotics and makerspaces. You do see more schools adding that. So what does the library offer? Why does it matter? Why should libraries be doing it? And what is it that we do in libraries that schools maybe do differently or don't? Mm -hmm. Well, for one, I think anyone who works in public libraries, if you ask them, number one, it's about access. You know, as a library, we want to provide access to technology, to STEAM resources, especially for underprivileged kids who may not see themselves in these industries. So I'm thinking women, immigrant kids, um, kids from low-income households. You know, we want to remove those barriers. And there's a lot of conversations about how we want to remove those barriers and get more underprivileged kids interested in STEAM so that they can, you know, start tech startups one day and go into these professions. And on one hand, I drink the Kool-Aid. I'm like, yeah. On the other hand, I'm very much aware that, especially with tech, it's often very commercial. You know, we're, we're saying go into these jobs because they make a lot of money. But at the end of the day, if you ask me, like, do I want to see more women in coding, in technology? And the answer is yes. So it's about removing those barriers. And what I think libraries have to offer is, as a librarian, you're not bound to the curriculum the way a school is. You know, you're not bound to those more formal methods of pedagogy. You can really kind of take things in different areas. You can emphasize informal learning if, you know, a child takes something like with a robot and goes completely off tangent. You don't really feel the need to have to rein them in. You can kind of go where that takes you. and. I think that is a really valuable thing that libraries offer. It's also like a recreational type of learning. There are studies that show that kids who read recreationally score higher on reading tests than kids who only read in school, right? Because it's the things that you do outside of school, those interests that you pursue that really help build your foundation. And libraries are a great place to do that. I've seen a trend over the last five years or so where more and more schools are building their own makerspaces, they are buying 3D printers, they're doing Lego robotics clubs. So a lot of them may be putting this into place, but I am sure that many of them are not at that stage, mm -hmm. depending on where they are in like where they're situated, what their budget is, what other demands they have mm -hmm. um, to fill. And so I think that it's important not to make the assumption that this stuff is ubiquitous now, whether in their personal lives. Mm -hmm. So to be like, oh, well, kids have an iPhone now, blah, mm -hmm. blah. But also in their school systems or in their homes, mm -hmm. we, we need to remain vigilant about access just to the resources themselves. Absolutely. You know, I think there is a common perception that most kids have access to the internet. They have phones, but I've worked with a lot of kids and families who don't have a computer at home, who don't have internet. Those barriers are still very much in place. Mm -hmm. Your comment about pursuing STEM just so that they get good jobs and like this very straight career path, especially when they're kids for so the pressure. Mm -hmm. um, I remember Toni Morrison talking about teaching high performing students, you know, by the time they get to university and yet they've forgotten what it means to read for pleasure and mm -hmm. just like take the time reading, which is, I mean, yes, it's both functional, but also like a joy, right? It's mm -hmm. an internal world. How they have completely forgotten the value and the role of reading for pleasure just for themselves and developing as a whole person mm -hmm. rather than just the one brain that's going to, you know, produce in the, in the capitalist system, if you will. So cool. thank you, Tony. Well, and then for how many librarians, I would assume, recognize the value of reading for pleasure. Mm -hmm. That's something that we're most likely familiar with on a personal mm -hmm. level. But again, my personal experience Science was a thing that I knew academically how to get good marks in, mm -hmm. but I recognized the very strong division between this is not my area, arts are my area. Mm -hmm. This is not the thing that is part of my life. Mm -hmm. This is like, it's not mine. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm positive that that division was created from a very young age mm -hmm. and it's something that's reinforced by the school system. So I think, Nancy, when you talk about like mm -hmm. the, the idea of the library being the place outside of the traditional modes yeah. of learning, do you think it's also potentially a place that can help to overcome some of those other barriers that are put into place in the formal education system? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, that, that have resulted in a division mm -hmm. like that or in yep. the females in one side, the males mm -hmm. in the other side or the science kids versus the mm -hmm. rest of the kids? I do think so. And actually there's a research project right now in Ontario where they've put makerspaces into about 20 different elementary schools. So this is very much, you know, embracing that. And the comments from most of the teachers afterwards was that being able to play in the makerspace actually helped improve academic performance. But what I thought was really interesting is that it also helped reach kids who have learning disabilities and who don't function well in a traditional classroom, because mm -hmm. these are alternative methods of learning. And I think with makerspaces, with STEAM, with STEM, a crucial element when you're working with kids is that of play. And I think when we're talking about recreation, for me, that's the same thing. Play is a big topic in the world of youth services. There's so much benefit to play, and especially play that's not dictated by an adult. You have to follow step one, step two, step three. This is where you're going, which I think, I don't want to you know, brush off all school curriculum is there, mm -hmm. but like you have learning outcomes. There is a certain thing you want to achieve versus just play and kind of self-directed learning has so many benefits. And I think, again, the freedom of a library because we're not bound to a curriculum, we can allow that. So for example, when we do a STEAM STEM, there's so many words for this <laughs> program for kids, my framework, and Carla, you worked on this framework, so you'll be familiar with it, is first you demonstrate what it is you're doing. So if it's a robot, you know, you do a little like, this is how it works. If you're talking about a scientific concept like buoyancy, you may talk a little bit about it. But the goal is to really make that part of the program quite short because the majority of a program should be taken up by experimentation. Here is the thing. We talked a little bit about the background behind it. Maybe I'll give you a challenge. Like let's, you know, design a robot that can joust with another robot, but I want to leave you to figure out where you want to take that. And it's that play, that experimentation that is so valuable. And as the kids play and experiment, the librarian, you're not a teacher, you're a facilitator. You're there to facilitate inquiry. So you ask them, what are you doing? Oh, that didn't work. Oh, why don't you think that didn't work? What are you gonna do next? And kind of really get them to think about what it is that they're doing, but really let them direct the direction that they take their play in. And then I like um, the last part of it is they share back. Whether yes. it's they share back like what didn't work or you know, I was trying to do this, but I just couldn't mm -hmm. get it. Or here is my successful project that I built and mm -hmm. here's what I would do next time. Or if I could yeah. have more time, here's what I would have worked on. Yeah, the sharing element is really important. And it's kind of another piece of why libraries is the communal, the social aspect of it. And you see that in makerspaces as well. You know, bringing kids together, having them work in teams, you're building those relationships between the kids, you're building the relationships between the adults and the kids. And that's something else that is worth thinking about when you talk about encouraging things like coding, like STEM, is, you know, they have, the kids have parents, maybe they have teachers, but they may not always have positive associations with either of those. And the library can function as a third place where you, as the facilitator, may be the only person in their lives who's really encouraging their interests or telling them, yes, you can do this. You're literally there to give them fun experiences. Exactly. And I, I think that's important, especially when we're talking about opening up access to kids who don't otherwise see themselves in the STEM fields, is there may be a natural hesitance, like, this is not for me. Mm. And at the end of the day, my goal is not to turn them into a professional coder or anything like that. I think my goal for them, and this is kind of a phrase that I often use, is I'd like to build a culture of people who are not just consumers of technology, but makers and tinkerers. And I liken it to driving a car. I can drive my car, I can operate it, but I don't really know how it works. So if it breaks down, I'm hooped. Like I couldn't explain it. And I think there's a real empowerment in knowing how your technology works, being able to tinker it, being able to lift the hood. And I think the more kids know that, even if they don't turn it into a career and they don't have to, that is empowering. You mentioned um, 
coding and formal or more directive initiatives to get, I guess, kids and youth to mm -hmm. uh, program and, and sort of learn about code. Can you comment on some tangible benefits of doing such initiatives or coding in libraries? So the thing that doesn't always get discussed is, you know, yes, you are facilitating the learning of this very technical skill, but there's so many other soft skills that go along with it. I know you guys have talked about that, you know, in any um, STEM or tech program, you are teaching them to collaborate. You're demonstrating problem solving. You're demonstrating so much problem solving because they will inevitably hit uh, challenges and then they will overcome them. You're teaching them emotional resilience. There are a whole lot of skills that go with that. So, and that's part of why I think coding is really valuable to learn. Number one, you're learning to make something Number two, you're learning all these other soft skills that go with it as well. I was also thinking about communication too and watching Silicon Valley mm -hmm. and how it may seem, uh, you know, not valuable or seem like tangential that they have to split up the task. And sometimes if mm -hmm. they don't communicate, they could waste time working on the same thing and mm -hmm. um, just how communication matters because mm -hmm. usually no single person will program the entire like algorithm or yeah. write a whole application on their own. Usually they take chunks, right? And they probably learn from others too and seeing how mm -hmm. other people approach that problem. So apart from sort of modeling those behaviors for the real world, mm -hmm. just practicing to communicate with people you may not know is also valuable. Yeah, and actually coding has tangible effects for traditional literacy as well. I think literacy is all to go together. I think it's kind of arbitrary to always be separating them out. And there are studies where they have done kind of coding concepts for toddlers. So these are things like teaching them a command, teaching a loop, like if you give a mouse a cookie is a famous picture book and it's a giant if then statement. And they found that after they did these programs with these kids, they were able actually to better sequence events. So for example, instead of saying, oh, I woke up, I brushed my teeth, they, will, they might say, I woke up, I got out of bed, I walked down the hallway, I put toothpaste in my toothbrush. They were able to define that into more steps and they actually scored better on traditional reading tests as well. So they all go together. I'm finding it really interesting that we're breaking down like all of these other skills that come from working with tech, mm -hmm. which are kind of critical to a modern day work environment, you mm -hmm. could say. Do we like break down traditional literacy in the same way? Or is it just they will learn how to read and write or something? Is it that there's not other skills that are wrapped up in traditional literacy, like soft skills? Or is it that we just don't think about it that way? There definitely are other skills involved in it, but I think a lot of people think of reading as such a core skill mm -hmm. that it's just the most base level. It's like saying skill of eating. Yes, there are other things involved, but most people don't, I think, think to break them down right. into further skills. Do you think that that's a reason why sometimes people might think of STEAM as secondary? Have you encountered that? I think you kind of alluded to it a bit at the beginning in amongst youth services librarians mm -hmm. or amongst, are you finding that there are still sort of questions or hesitations around STEAM in the library? There are. And, you know, you just heard me argue that there are all these soft skills you yeah. learn, like collaboration, communication. But in a way, that's almost like saying, well, because they learn these skills, STEAM is valuable. When, you know, no one says because you learn these soft skills, reading is valuable. You understand that reading is valuable in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a common perception that yes, technology, you know, we can do programs with it, but as long as it leads to these learning outcomes that are not necessarily related to technology, technology itself is a tool for other skills and it is, but it's not always celebrated as a tool for play and for further development in and of itself. Isn't that kind of how we look at reading though too? What is reading what for? Is, reading? Like, <laughs> is it for transmission of information? Mm -hmm. Is it in order to be able to communicate with people? Like it has these other reasons. I think with traditional literacy, again, it goes back to this question of empowerment and creating makers rather than consumers. Because one of the goals of traditional literacy is that students can then learn to express themselves really well. 
And you know that level of communication is will get them further in life. Will kind of allow them to get what they want in their career and their personal lives. What are some of the strategies that you've taken to get people on board who are maybe not so instinctively convinced about STEAM? I've really tried to emphasize that in libraries, a lot of it is about play. So there is a tension that in order to facilitate this program about robotics or coding, they have to be experts in that area when in fact that's not true. You know, even just getting down there, figuring it out with the child, playing together is extremely valuable because number one, you're demonstrating a lot of those soft skills. You're also building that relationship with them. There's just so much value and that in of itself. So again, try to lower the intimidation factor of you must be an expert. I do find that's where a lot of people kind of get hung up. And that kind of reminds me, I think another part of the stigma maybe is there's a lot of fear of excessive screen time when it comes to children. Mm. Not that all STEM involves screens, but it's this idea of, well, shouldn't they be outside playing in nature? There's no single study that has the definitive answer. But if you talk to a lot of doctors and people who work with children, they'll say that for ages kind of two and under, no screen time. For ages two to six, one hour a day. But for ages six and above, limited screen time, but there's no actual number. And really what a lot of it comes down to is that it isn't really the quantity of screen time that's the issue. It's the what's what you do. So screen time that's, you know, doing homework, screen time that's reading an ebook. One of the fears of too much screen time is also that, you know, you're removing the opportunity for the child to socialize with their parent, with other friends. But if you can do that together screen wise, like that's a really positive experience. So it's not about how much time you spend on the screen. It's about what you do when you're there. Something that I've been really interested in, I like to do more work on STEAM and tech programs that involve the entire family. So parents working together with their kids, learning code together, building robots together, playing video games together. Again, I think that's about the quality of what you do. You're doing it together. You're building those bonds. You're working as a team. I think it's an area that you know I could do more work in. The idea of family um, STEM programs, intergenerational. Really what I want is a family Fortnite competition or an intergenerational Fortnite competition. You have the you know 12 and under category and you have the 50 and above category and you pit them <laughs> against each other. Yeah, there's a lot to be gained in people of all ages learning this together rather than just focusing on teaching it to kids. Why Fortnite? Oh, because it's popular. I'm sure, I'm sure you would get a great turnout. And parents are often asking, what is Fortnite? Why is my kid always playing on it? You know, giving them yeah. that education. Well, why, why don't you play together? Yeah, why not get that parent hooked on Fortnite? Exactly. Whoa, the family yes. that Fortnite's together stays together. <laughs> but Nancy, another kind of silly question from uh-huh. a non-youth librarian. Why is it so hard? Like, why is it such an earth-shattering idea to combine generations? Exactly. And I think it just comes down to it's much easier to create categories. These are children programs. These are teen programs. These are adult programs. These are seniors programs when there should be more fluidity between them because there is a lot they can learn from each other. You maybe wanted to talk about gaming a little bit. So you alluded to Fortnite, but is there something specific you wanted to chat about games and maybe as related to you services? Video gaming gets a lot of criticism, especially when you bring it into a library environment, because more and more libraries are hosting gaming in their spaces. And the question is, again, like it's a lot of screen time. It's violent. Why are you doing this? The other question is, you know, my child has a PlayStation at home. Like, what's the value of them coming to the library to do it? And for me, it's about building community. It's about getting people together, making new friends, meeting each other, having that positive adult facilitator there and building that social environment that I think is super important. And I know previous guests have talked about it, so I'm not going to go too much into it, but there is also a lot of education to be had in games. You know, Minecraft continues to be a big thing. And there are so many educational opportunities in Minecraft. There are entire Minecraft worlds that are built to mimic ancient civilizations. And as you go through them, you actually learn these about pyramids, about different pieces of architecture. And so that combines it really well. 
Yeah, both subject matter and the know-how to put it together, right? Well, exactly. then, like the entire narrative element of other games, right? Like no different, I'm sure, than reading novel. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a similar level of interaction with a world and with, mm-hmm. a, with a storyline, with characters, mm-hmm. with an environment. I'm really interested in the role that games may have in empathy because when you're playing a video game, you are immersed mm-hmm. in a character, you're immersed in a world. And there are a lot of video games that you know can bring you to a culture that is not your own and you learn more about it. But the thing I actually really like about gaming is that it is excellent for teaching problem solving and emotional resilience because games are hard. You know, I was playing a game the other day, God of War, and I couldn't figure out a puzzle. And I was like, flip the table, I'm done, this is too much. But I've seen so many kids, like they get in it, they can't figure it out, they try again, they try again, like they keep plugging at it. And I think that's something that we often overlook, that these are really key problem solving skills. So should I feel bad about the fact that when I was a kid and I had like missed on CD-ROM, for example, mm-hmm. I would like play with it and then I'd get stuck on a puzzle and I'd be like, ugh, puzzle. And then like I found a book in the bookstore mm-hmm. that was like, Secrets of Mist, and then it would just tell me the answers to puzzles, <laughs> and then I could look it up and solve that puzzle if I needed to move on to the next thing. So should I be framing this as my information searching skills in order to help me solve the problem <laughs> are excellent, or that I'm just like super bad at resilience and not good at problem solving? You know, I'm the exact same way. I, you know, I see a problem and I get frustrated really easily. So I am always really impressed when I see so many kids who play video games who you just do keep plugging at it. I always felt ashamed because other people could make it through like legitimately. And I was like, oh, well, I, yeah, just, no. I just looked up how to do it. These kids are just so much better at problem solving than I am. This is just They're me, a lot smarter than me I am. as a librarian <laughs> doing video games versus engineers doing video games. But I've also viewed these uh, cheats or kind of sources as very much reflective of reality, right? So mm-hmm. in the workplace, some people will struggle and struggle. And like, I, I fully hear you on the building the comfort with frustration and just knowing how to work through a problem. Like, mm-hmm. like that's always going to come in handy. Mm-hmm. But also cheats do exist for a reason. And we have plenty of parallels for that in the world and to some degree you know maps are they cheats for getting mm-hmm. like you know you you plugged in my address to get to here today <laughs> is that cheating versus like learning the directions there are different strategies and and probably kids aren't like reflecting on their choices but um i i think just i hope being exposed to various experiences within that gaming world right so knowing that a code book, a solution book is one way to go, but some will be motivated by that maybe internal struggle figuring it out. Or watching someone else do it that way, mm-hmm. which is what maybe is one of the benefits of the social environment for gaming mm-hmm. in a library is that you see other people's styles and other people's grit and maybe are inspired by that. People play games for different reasons. Yeah, I don't want to imply that everyone plays it for the challenge. People play it for different reasons and they get different things out of it. I guess at the end of the day, I personally feel that video games are a valid medium that like all things, you should do it in moderation. Kids should do it in moderation. But that increasingly the kind of divide between this is a video game, it's trashy versus this is a book, it's good for you, that the gap is growing smaller and smaller. Like there are a lot of video games that are like books that involve a ton of reading. And I think just, yeah, we need to yeah remove a lot of that stigma around video games and, you know, thinking they don't have any role in child development and education. Do you think you services librarians think that kids should read in moderation? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I don't, I, <laughs> I don't think there would be any youth services librarian that said that. And like, and that exactly, that's a good point. <laughs> Your comment about fear of screen time and the idealization of spending time outside is not necessarily new because we've all known or maybe been uh, bookish ones who would spend hours indoors, right? And like ruin your eyesight Mm -hmm. and not move that much, right? So we have parallels in print as well. So it's not like 
without screens, we were outdoors any more than we could have chosen to be. Exactly. And, you know, as more and more kids read on devices, which are screens, I think that line between reading and screen time, like it's increasingly blurred. Are we going to say that the kid who sat there and read for three hours on an e-reader, are we going to say that's bad? I think a lot of people say, no, it's great. They're reading. Mm -hmm. Well, and I like your point about empathy, because that's one of the reasons for reading fiction that people often mm -hmm. give, right? Is that it's proven to build empathy with people who are different from you. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, of course, it would be exactly the same in a video game environment. When you're reading, it's very text-based. It's very visual. Of course, you can also listen to a book. And it's very audio as well. But they tend to engage kind of only one sense or two. But video games can engage a lot of different senses. You have the audio, you have the visual, you have, you know, challenges and all of these things kind of build maybe even a richer package than just reading on a text can be. So this is actually reminding me of this really cool thing that I was reading about the other day. It's called The Lit Room. It's in, yeah. because it's lit. I know, it's lit. It's in Richland Library in partnership with Clemson University. And what it is, is essentially kind of a cube room in the library where they do story times for kids. But this room has light, has sound, has moving panels. And as you read the story, the story comes to life around you. So, you know, if you're reading the story and it's nighttime, like the stars will come out, the sounds will be there. And they do this because it engages more senses and it helps kids remember the story better afterwards again, because it has just kind of a deeper experience. And you see that being done with picture books. I remember playing, I think it was even um, Angry Birds on a console and just like the haptic feedback of the controller buzzing mm -hmm. and giving that, like there's different behaviors associated with whatever bird. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's other, mm -hmm. and of course, good sound can add so much more but even now with all this other spatial and sort of physical feedback mm -hmm. uh, that's a little bit harder because it requires extra technology yeah. but the fact that they're saying you know what this is important we're going to have this room mm -hmm. and the retention too that's fascinating and that it's tapping into i guess more nerve i don't know complexes mm -hmm. i've been thinking recently about how oh, geez, am I like more of a kinesthetic learner or like, do I need to move or mm -hmm. you know, use my hands? Because it's just being aware of how you're wiring that network in your mm -hmm. head and then later recalling it. Um, mm -hmm. Although there are some people who disagree with the whole learning style. You know, we're all audiovisual, we're all auditory. So I don't know how I feel about that. I did zero research on mm -hmm. that. <laughs> It's not entirely related to youth services, but I've always been very interested in the relationship to the body and reading. Because again, I think traditional modes of reading is you read with your eyes and that's all you need. But there are a lot of different senses engaged in reading and some people read better with some senses than others. Mm -hmm. Reading is not some, like my brain is there, I'm disembodied. Like you're very much embodied in reading as with everything else you do. It's not purely an intellectual pursuit. Great point, Nancy, because I'm sure we can all remember where we were reading that book or mm -hmm. other things around us. And of course, I think Carla and I have talked about print versus digital and just like being able to orient ideas physically within a codex, right? Like mm -hmm. an object on a page. So like there's other ways we associate, I mm -hmm. guess, the mental activity that's happening with other things because we're all complete mm -hmm. beings, right? Mm -hmm. And even with the lit room, with adding, you know, sound and light is you're also giving an opportunity for people whose first language is not English or whatever language it is you happen to be reading. They can still experience the story. There are other cues that they can pick up on. Mm -hmm. That's why I've always loved felt. Yes. Um, is there like a, an official uh, industry term for felt sets or whatever, or like flannel boards? Why, flannel why boards. Why do we call them flannel though? Why don't we call them felt? I, I don't know. Felt boards. Yeah. I, right. he, I like hear a, them called both, but I more commonly hear them referred to as flannels. I don't I know agree. why. Because flannel is a type of material and that's not what they're mm -hmm. made of. They're made of felt. Yeah, no, they're made of felt. But yeah, I love them because they're very, they're very sensory. You pick them up, you touch them, you hold them in your hand, you play around with them, you can smell them, you can chew on them, although I don't advise that. But again, they involve the body. And for some kids, like that helps them experience the story better. Well, it's a physical thing in the physical space, right? Yeah. So this is a material element of the story versus just I'm sharing this through words for mm -hmm. you to imagine. 
Okay, two questions because I don't want to privilege one mode of storytelling over yeah. the other. What is your favorite flannel story? And what is your favorite video game of the last year? My favorite flannel story is probably some variation of five little monkeys jumping on the bed because you can spin that off in so many variations. Five little dinosaurs jumping on the bed, five little unicorns. It's very versatile. You're also teaching some basic numeracy skills. Like it's it's got a lot. And my favorite video game of the last two years, did you say? Sure. That's a while. Is Probably the Dragon Age series. It's an RPG, and this is just kind of a genre that I really like. It's very typical high fantasy, but I really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. It's just funny that we're talking about these senses and, and multimodal learning, but mm -hmm. those are the things I remember the most from doing kind of story times. Mm -hmm. A subgenre of that, I guess, would be like a flip story, which <laughs> yeah. is like on a giant fabric. And Granted, you're not going to recreate a whole book mm -hmm. on large sheets of fabric because that's very time consuming. And also, what do flannel stories do that picture books can't do, right? It's the mm -hmm. handing of the pieces. The kids can stick it on the mm -hmm. wall. They can fall down. They can throw them across. Like, you can't really do that with a picture book without <laughs> ripping mm -hmm. it. And then with the flip story, I guess it's all one, but you have to be very succinct and key elements of that story. And so to this day, mm -hmm. I remember this seminal work, uh, which was a fabric recreation of Pigs Aplenty, Pigs Galore. Mm -hmm. And I think what stands out in my mind is just like the physical nature, the very tangible lacy bras of pigs mm -hmm. in their underwear, right? And just like <laughs> the care that went into making undies for pigs. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they're very messy. And first of all, any story about pigs, I'm down. Oh, yeah. But, you know, someone took the time and they chose the little lacy fabrics and also kids just like go bananas because it's like embarrassing, right? And mm -hmm. it's just like over the top and bizarre. <laughs> but if I remember it, hopefully they remember it. And it's just like that moment to be silly and just mm -hmm. like have joy in rhyme. Are those things that you think could be brought into STEAM programming at the library more? Those kinds of like silliness pigs. <laughs> I think the silliness aspect can definitely brought into STEAM. One of my favorite STEAM activities is the design thinking activity where kids and teams, they pull out words out of two different hats. One hat contains silly words like unicorn, pizza, booger. The second hat contains tech words or when they're really young, like noun words. So you could pull out a combination of unicorn, machine, and then using the tech that you have on hand, whatever it is, or maybe even no tech, just craft supplies, you have to design something that reflects those words you've pulled. So unicorn and machine. And you get really wild results that way. There's a lot of silliness. There's a lot of creativity. But there's a lot of design element involved. And I guess that goes back to kind of way back in the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about the A in STEAM, arts. It's not just about creativity and design, or it is, but I think it often gets overlooked as a crucial element in learning STEAM because, you know, when we think about technology, when we think about our iPhones, like one of the reasons why Apple is so well regarded is because people like the design mm -hmm. of their products. And that is very much like an artistic sensibility. And it's funny watching adults struggle through that design thinking activity because mm -hmm. for years they have absorbed shutting down that just like wild, incompatible, you know, putting the two random elements together mm -hmm. because it's useless mm -hmm. in very serious activities that we do every day. Yeah. Right. Like adults will never design a banana phone. <laughs> um, and how it like it's a challenge to reactivate that brain, even though it's in all of us. Right. Just like mm -hmm. synthesizing you unique elements. I think that's probably a way too to broaden the appeal to kids who may not see themselves as scientists mm -hmm. because of the way science is done mm -hmm. in schools or is kind of perceived in pop culture and same with the technology industry. Like if you're not the geek, then you have no place here. But if you're in a program that's using different bits of technology and has pigs in it and is like making silly design objects or lacy bras for robots or something, mm -hmm. then maybe that helps to break down those those stereotypes and 
of who is allowed to do tech and what it's supposed to look like. Exactly. Never underestimate the value of fun as an element in encouraging learning and growth. Mm-hmm. A part of my job is also taking STEAM and technology out on the road, so traveling mm-hmm. technology. And that's been a really interesting experience. So I will tell you guys about, I think, the biggest mishap I've had when taking <laughs> robots on the road which is I was doing a program inside an elementary school. We were in the central library commons. It was a fully open space. And we were using Sphero robots. Sphero robots are capable of moving very, very quickly. They are also quite small. So as the kids were driving around the Sphero robots, one boy comes up to me and says, teacher, teacher, I don't know where my robot has gone. I thought, okay, you know, this is happens all the time. Uh, it's probably, you know, under a desk or somewhere. Like, let's just you know, move the control, like, do we hear it? And we hear it. So we track it and we're like, where is this robot? And without knowing, this boy had somehow driven the robot out of the learning commons, down the hall, into the boy's washroom, into a clogged urinal. No. Yeah, talk about getting down and dirty. So (gasps) I won't go into the detail of what I had to do to get that robot out. They are waterproof though. So it, you know, I think there's more to that story from the boys' end. There's no way that sphere like jumped into the air I'm, to get in the No, air I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure because you couldn't see the washroom from where we were in the library, so he didn't have a direct vision. He had somehow, through a series of coincidences, had just moved it so that it was in the urinal. That's quite a memorable moment of mm-hmm. taking technology so, into the wild, if you will. It's it's always a risk, right? But it's uh, <laughs> but it's always a good time. Always a risk that the Sphero can end up in the urinal. Exactly. Um, but the other aspect of taking technology on the road is the question of infrastructure. And you know, when you're doing outreach with technology, a lot of times you're in buildings and spaces without maybe all the infrastructure you need. So maybe they don't Wi-Fi or their Wi-Fi isn't very good, or you know you have a piece of tech that's charging and they don't have electrical outlets. So you have to have an extra level of preparation than you would normally do when you're inside your own building and you can kind of count on all of these pieces. What's the hit list? A lot of it comes down to having the budget to buy these things. And that's mm-hmm. why bringing, you know, doing outreach with technology isn't always an option for all libraries. But, you know, like a Wi-Fi hotspot, a battery, like these are all things that can make it easier. Mm-hmm. Is there anything new that you're exploring right now or would like to pilot? Like what in your ideal situation, what would you implement tomorrow? I'm kind of serious about like the intergenerational Fortnite. I think more family video gaming would be really great. Man, maybe that will get easier and easier as like, gamers grow up right like mm-hmm. people who have also yes. spent their childhood gaming get older and have kids like we're you know we're in that time now mm-hmm. so that that might have more appeal is there something that's a challenge for you like big or small in terms of tech at the library that you're thinking about or looking to overcome next i think probably the biggest barrier is just getting the staff by and making them feel confident in using it i think that's always going to be the biggest barrier, you know, you have to work a lot on training and, you know, emphasizing that you don't have to be an expert. And so this is the staff who are actually delivering the programs in the branches primarily? Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the strategies that you use in order to try and help them get over some of that? Well, again, I like to emphasize the play aspect. So I like to train staff by having them play. Mm -hmm. So I lead them through a version of the program. So, you know, the design thinking activity, Mm -hmm. what have you. And I think when staff realize that they themselves are having fun, and I've seen a lot of staff who are leery of technology, but have a great time doing these activities, they can see then the value and the fun in doing them with kids. And some staff, you just have to really convince them of the educational aspect and all of that (laughs) stuff too. But I think if you can get a staff member to have fun doing it, you're on your way to making them interested and then delivering that program to the public. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking, like, do all of them have fun when they're doing a story time? Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe That's some true. of them need to, like, know the other reasons for doing it. Mm-hmm. That's or true. for doing a, yeah. like, rhyming program with kids where they're having to sing. We assume that, of course, it's mandatory that they enjoy every story, yeah. every song they do. But sometimes it's just, like, the kids get a lot out of it. But mm-hmm. for them, it's, you know, 
doing that half hour and moving on. But it's like, mm-hmm. it's hard for them or it's not their thing. There is maybe a myth in children's librarianship that I've internalized that it's not very academic. There's not a lot of deep thinking. Ooh, you know, we just play. So that's kind of where it started. But as I sat down and thought, yes, we play, but at, here's why. But you cited like at least two to three studies already in this conversation. <laughs> I was thinking like, what a pleasure it is to have colleagues and friends who are actively looking out into industry field or, you know, mm-hmm. like libraries world, but also just being aware of what, you know, research and education saying. We shouldn't have to justify like enjoying stories and playing with robots and playing with each other as like, yeah, there's there's studies that say that cognitively this and, you know, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Like it's good for its own sake. I do appreciate when we consistently look to kind of literature or just you know the world around us to to make those connections rather than just relying on assumptions or like well this is how we've always done story time so that's how it'll be Mm -hmm. i think an interesting aspect of youth services though is because you're working with kids you tend to see the impact of what you're doing maybe a little bit quicker than you work with adults so when you then read these studies about how you know yes makerspaces are helping students who struggle in traditional classrooms in a way, you, you already know that. You don't really need the study to prove it to you. The study is proving that what something that you see and experience in your own programs. But with that said, you know, having the research kind of validates it and makes sure that it's across the board and not necessarily your own personal experience. Is but, that because mm-hmm. the kids are more like effusive or kids versus adults in that scenario? Mm-hmm. I think kids are more willing to tell you yeah. the challenges they have and are, tend to share them with you more. And maybe share their successes too. Like mm-hmm. if they got the robot to do X, Y, or Z, they can mm-hmm. brag about it. Yeah, they tend to be more vocal. And, you know, and that's not true of all kids, but mm-hmm. I find in general. At some libraries, there are tech specific roles. Mm-hmm. And then there might be a youth services librarian role. Mm-hmm. Do you see those two things as separate, or do you see technology as being something that youth services librarians? are kind of required to touch on now? Definitely the latter. I think having a base level of technological competence is a necessity for a youth services librarian operating in today's library. It's something that comes up so much in our everyday work. Now, with that said, you don't have to be an expert at any one given thing, but I think to turn away from technology, to turn away from steam, or to think like, I'll let someone else do that, someone who specializes in it. I think that kind of just pigeons you further and further into a hole when really a youth services librarian should be willing and interested in exploring all different types of literacy. Mm-hmm. Maybe especially now if it's something that is so, schools are taking this on, mm-hmm. like this is something that in education is changing drastically and mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways and is helping us to rethink how kids learn and mm-hmm. and what the best processes are. So, I mean, yeah, it makes sense to me to kind of stay on top of all of those broader trends that it's mm-hmm. sort of churning up too. Yeah, exactly. Increasingly, I think, especially for school age kids that, you know, six and above, you are seeing a lot of, a lot more STEAM and tech programs in public libraries. And yeah, I think you, you need to you need to embrace that as being valuable and not scorn it because it's not traditional literacy. Mm-hmm. If someone feels scared or uncomfortable embracing a tech program, mm-hmm. what do you say to them? I don't think there's any one magic phrase that will do it, but I think it's about sitting down and working with them. It's mm-hmm. I think it's also about sharing your own uncertainties and the things mm. you struggle with, right? Because you don't want to present yourself as, I know everything, you know, I was once like, you like, I had to learn this from somewhere. Mm-hmm. We'll work together. You don't have to be perfect. So modeling that mm-hmm. so that they can then lead it and model it for the kids too. Exactly. Oh, so smart. With adults, I just say tough luck, buttercup. You have to <laughs> <laughs> embrace the struggle. <laughs> and you're right. Like some people have a bit more mental or like emotional resilience to just sort of 
feel comfortable with not knowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking more about adults, like mm-hmm. with kids is different. But yeah, some kids are also intimidated, yeah. right? Maybe their background has been full of instability mm-hmm. and they're not in a supportive environment. And so mm-hmm. they have to have high pressure to perform. Mm-hmm. I don't say tough luck, buttercup. Uh, I think it's a shocker for many of our colleagues to realize that we have also learned things and it's not like just magically. And I think working in youth services, even doing tech programs, is you are often sticking to a generalist approach. You know, you're, yes, you know, you may run a Raspberry Pi program, an Arduino program, something very technical, but in those cases, I would give that program to someone who is passionate, is very knowledgeable. But in a lot of cases, it's not as complicated as that. You don't need a great amount of technical skill to run a tech program. What's been one of the things you've been proudest of? I think for me, it probably is training. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had the opportunity to train a lot of staff to really emphasize to them why steam should be a part of libraries why we should it's not a scary thing and we should embrace it and you know i do see more and more of my colleagues embrace you know become interested in it and i it's pretty rewarding isn't it i mean at the end of the day like i don't know if it was like me that made that <laughs> difference right but i like to think that i'm a part of that and, and even just that aha moment where someone who you know like robots know but then they do the fun activity and they're laughing you can see the enjoyment in them and like kind of see that light bulb that this is a valuable thing that for me is extremely rewarding well thank you again nancy it's been very uh, rewarding to chat with you today and have you put into your words some of these themes that I think we share, right? Mm-hmm. But also with, with your own perspective and um, to see your passion for this shine. That's, you know, that's why we do this. Mm-hmm. It's been such a pleasure to be able to come and ramble with you guys about the things I'm interested in. Find us on iTunes. That's what it's called. iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Please listen to more episodes. Rate, review, subscribe. If you have ideas for things you'd like to talk about or want to get in touch, you can email us at nolibrariansallowed at gmail. Stay tuned for more um, episodes with guests. I'm sure everyone enjoys listening to me and Carla rant about <laughs> feminist issues, but we'll we'll have some other people join. Yeah, we can have other people rant about feminist issues. Perfect. Exactly. Okay, thank you. Bye.